Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I have with me famed free speech attorney Floyd Abrams, who's senior counsel at Cahill Gordon and Rindell. Floyd, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So one of the reasons we're here, in addition to just free speech being so much in the news, is that you recently published a book called The Soul of the First Amendment. What made you decide to publish this book, which you refer to kind of as an essay? It's, it's not a giant weighty tome. Uh, what made now the time that you wanted to make sure that this got into print and was published? Well, it occurred to me that both uh, on the level of lawyers, non-lawyers, academics, non-academics, just people who are interested in the sort of uh, protection we have in this country for free speech, that there might be interesting uh, to do a book which, at its core, compares the level of protection we have for free speech and free expression and freedom of the press uh, in our country uh, and in other democratic countries. So the book is not a comparison of the U.S. and Russia, say, or or, uh, Venezuela. It's a comparison in good part between the U.S. and other countries that care about free speech, such as England and Canada and Belgium and the like, Uh, but which provide uh, significantly less protection for it. And it seemed to me that it would be interesting and and in its way important for the broader public uh, to have a sense of the degree to which the uh, level of legal protection for free speech uh, in particular and free expression generally in this country is different from and exceeds that uh, anywhere else in the world. So, Floyd, I think that a good segment of our audience is already aware of your work and your career uh, defending free speech and the First Amendment. But for those who aren't, could you describe a little bit about some of the major cases that you've been involved on, either as a plaintiff's attorney or as defending a defendant? I uh, was uh, one of the counsel, one of the lead counsel in the Pentagon Papers case uh, representing the New York Times. Uh, That was way back in 1971, and in the years after that, I've represented uh, newspapers, broadcasters, journalists in a wide variety of cases and other entities, too. I filed a brief, and I was one of the people that argued in uh, the Citizens United case in the Supreme Court. So if you simply uh, sort of uh, look at the sort of span of time, between the Pentagon Papers case in 1971 and the Citizens United case in 2010. I've been very busy in this area. I've been teaching in it as well as practicing it uh, and writing about it as well. One of the things I very much appreciated about your book was you give a history of the First Amendment, not just, oh, this is when it was signed, et cetera, but how it was used and how it evolved in our thinking as Americans, uh, the importance of free speech and how the First Amendment could be used to protect it. I'd say even as a journalist, you know, we talk a lot about New York Times v. Sullivan and kind of onward, but I was unaware that in the first hundred years after its passage, you know, the First Amendment was not really being used in the ways that we see it being used today. What caused the 
shift in thinking between, well, it's a First Amendment in the Constitution, but we can restrict all sorts of things about speech in the press to where matters stand today? I would say that what, what started to change it was uh, World War I and the prosecution uh, during World War I, uh, 1917, 1918, and the like, of uh, uh, critics, American critics of the war uh, who gave uh, speeches. They were mostly socialists, sometimes anarchists, and a number of them were jailed uh, for their speeches. And those cases found their way to the Supreme Court. And it was the Supreme Court on which uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis were two of the justices. And in a series of dissenting opinions that they wrote uh, in those cases back then, we see the formulation of the First Amendment uh, as being much more active, much more powerful than it had been previously in the courts. Uh, I mean, we should remember that these prosecutions of dissenters against the war uh, included uh, Eugene Debs, a socialist uh, who uh, had garnered uh, almost two million votes uh, in a national election, which would be far more now, of course, uh, with the added population. And he was jailed uh, for a number of years, as were other speakers. And that started a discussion going in the courts and within the public and in academia as well uh, about, uh, you know, just how far does the First Amendment go? Uh, it's not as if the government had no argument to make that if during a war someone gives a speech denouncing the war, that the effect of it could be that fewer people will enlist. And that was what the government argued. But the question in, in a number of these cases, in the early days of the First Amendment really coming front and center, the question was, well, yeah, it's true that maybe fewer people would enlist. But on the other hand, it's not a little thing to say to people that they can't give a speech criticizing the war effort. Or, or urging people to urge their legislators uh, to try to end the war uh, on one basis or, or another. And so starting then, uh, starting uh, you know, in, the, in the early part of the 20th century, we started to have cases, uh, and the amount of those cases increased through the 20th century. And, and uh, you, uh, you mentioned New York Times against Sullivan. That, of course, was one of the great, great First Amendment cases in our country's history. But it's, it's just worth remembering that while the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights as a whole was an 18th century uh, creation, it really wasn't until the 20th century, and for the most part, the last half of the 20th century, that we started to have established in our courts very broad, uh, sweeping, almost sort of breathtaking protection for free speech uh, of a sort that had never been known before and still does not exist throughout most of the democratic world. Given the, I would say, speed of that sea change, when you're looking at a timeline, that does seem like a pretty quick shift in the law and in attitudes. 
what do you think are the dangers as we're in the 21st century that the First Amendment may face? What are the forces that most want to change our First right. Amendment jurisprudence or, or affect it in a way that you don't believe represents our best opportunity to protect people's freedoms? Well, I'd say a few things. Uh, one is that uh, to go back again to the early part of the 20th century, it was just 100 years ago in 1917 that Congress uh, enacted uh, the Espionage Act, which is still in effect today. Uh, it was enacted during World War One. It is very broadly phrased. And if all you did was just to read that, you really might think a good deal of what is published today about national defense issues, about intelligence gathering, and other uh, State Department-related issues uh, would put journalists uh, at risk uh, because uh, a lot of the language in that Espionage Act is couched in terms of uh, materials relating to the national defense, which on one level or another, uh, just about everything is when you're talking about defense policy or intelligence policy. And certainly when you're talking about information, which may be classified and which uh, journalists uh, obtain and write about uh, and inform the public about. So we don't have much law on that. I mean, there's, there are strong arguments, for example, that a journalist could not be found guilty under the Espionage Act for simply gathering information and publishing it but based on classified documents. More likely than not, I would say even strongly more likely than not, uh, if the intention of the journalist is not to help a foreign power or not to hurt the U.S., uh, he or she would, would likely wind up unprosecuted and, if prosecuted, unpunished. But we don't know because we don't have much law uh, and we have this old statute just sort of sitting there. So that's one thing that uh, worries me. A second thing is the area of confidential sources of journalists. Uh, we don't have a federal shield law in the U.S., and uh, right now there doesn't seem to be much of a, a push for it. Uh, the result of that is that uh, some journalists, including some clients of mine, uh, have, have a, sometimes wound up in jail uh, because they felt that they should uh, and were obliged to, morally obliged to, journalistically obliged to protect the identity uh, of their sources. Finally, I'd say what troubles me is the, the, the level and frequency and vituperative nature of some of the criticism of the press today, uh, which uh, is unique in American history. I mean, we've had bouts between the press and the government throughout our history. And uh, John Adams is responsible for the Sedition Act of 1798, probably the most repressive anti-free press statute we've ever had. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, suspended the writ of habeas corpus a number of times during the Civil War, and some journalists were jailed. Theodore Roosevelt tried to get uh, Joseph Pulitzer, the great uh, magnet uh, owner of, of newspapers, jailed at one point for some of his writing. But what we haven't really had until now 
is a sort of ongoing effort to discredit the press as a whole and, in effect, to delegitimize it, to persuade the public that the press is basically acting in an illicit, uh, un-American, uh, and uh, basically unpatriotic uh, a way. And it does concern me that that sort of daily uh, attack uh, on the press by our president uh, can have real harmful effects about the ability of the press to go about their jobs and, and to serve the public. Let me make clear, this president and every president has First Amendment rights, too. And that's a right to speak out, have his or her say, uh, and the like. But this sort of constant attack, as if it were an agenda item of the first order, the constant attack on the press as being uh, illegitimate, I think can significantly interfere with its role at its very best as a sort of uh, check on government conduct and misconduct. So one of the challenges that, and I'm going to use the term fake news, that's, that's, in, the, that's in the vocabulary now, but I'm going to use it towards websites, for example, who we can prove are actually publishing stories that they appear to be news, they look like news websites, They sound like the way journalists report, but what they are saying is materially false. So that's what I'm meaning when I'm saying fake news. What are our options to curtail them? Should we have options to curtail them? Or would that put everyone else who wants to publish something on the Internet that may be fictional, would that put them at risk as well? I'd say my concern is not so much that sort of going after fake news would put at risk fictional writers. My concern is is that if we're talking or even contemplating any sort of legislation uh, to deal with, quote, fake news, unquote, uh, we are empowering the government to decide what's true and what's false and to uh, pass a sort of uh, judgment that uh, every uh, dictator uh, and every uh, leader uh, of uh, totalitarian countries has sought and claimed and sometimes succeeded in using uh, throughout history. I think to deal with fake news, uh, we need uh, two things. One, the entities that are the publishers, I don't mean the writers, but the publishers in the sense of Facebook and Google and the like, have a responsibility of their own. And uh, some of them are trying uh, haltingly and with difficulty because this is a very, very delicate area. But, but, uh, you know, there there is a role for them to play in deciding not to carry so-called news by by entities that uh, simply fabricate it. Uh, That's one thing. A second is that the public has got to learn uh, and got to be taught uh, in school when they're young that the fact that something's on the Internet doesn't make it true and indeed doesn't even suggest that it's true, that everything has, has got to be capable of defending every entity, of, of defending its accuracy and the like. 
before the public. Uh, finally, it seems to me that the misuse of the concept of fake news uh, to simply criticize in, in the most uh, strident and repetitive terms uh, uh, news organizations that that publish articles which uh, uh, this president or this administration or a later one finds uh, discomforting or, 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 or finds as harmful to them or their view of what's good for the country is itself disturbing. I mean, the, the public itself has got to engage in a self-education process uh, to understand that, that criticism of this or any president is not for that reason illicit. Uh, I mean, we, we, we have a First Amendment in good part to protect dissent, to protect criticism of government. And it's uh, very important for the, the people uh, all of them to understand that. That's one of the things, for example, that I think uh, could be taught uh, more often uh, and, and more generally in what used to be uh, civics courses in school, which some states uh, still have, but many of them don't. Uh, and so, you know, we wind up with people entering college, you know, who've never had a course or a, a, a serious exposure to uh, a, a description in meaningful terms of what sort of constitution we have, what sort of bill of rights we have, and in particular, what the First Amendment is all about. I like what you say about public education. I myself was not taught civics uh, in school, and I was in the same position you're describing, where I, I entered college only mostly grasping how our Congress functioned and, and things like that. I wasn't taught it. When you're talking about public education about the First Amendment, I think that there's a very human tendency to say, oh, yes, I support free speech until you come up against something that I find incredibly repugnant. Um, and, and this is on yeah. the right and the left. I'm not saying that sure. any one person is more prone to it than another. And indeed, some of the European countries that you describe have come to a different place on this. So they have hate speech laws and, and things like this. If you were talking to a classroom full of children or high schoolers, how would you explain to them why, you know, personal feelings of repugnance or, or thinking that what someone has just said is terrible and, and indefensible? What would you tell them to explain why the First Amendment is so important even for that speech? or especially for that speech? Yeah, what I, what I would try to explain to them is that we have to have a, a sort of general approach uh, in terms of what powers we think uh, the government, state, federal, whatever, can be entrusted with having. And, and that what the, what the framers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights at their best thought was that in these very sensitive areas, and I should add religion now too, the areas that the First Amendment deals with, basically freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, the reason the framers wrote them down, the reason they thought it had to be in a document, uh, a written document, and a document that was law, not an essay, not a poem, but law, was that if you didn't do it that way, you would risk 
our government becoming an awful lot more like the governments that we've seen throughout the world in which uh, they're run by uh, dictators, uh, tyrants, and even when it's less than that, just basically run by, you could call it strongmen who uh, uh, are in charge of everything and think that they have a right to be. And so I, I would take them through cases. I mean, a little girl during World War II who was a Jehovah Witness and uh, whose parents had told her that she couldn't salute the American flag. And the question was, uh, could they take her out of a public school until she promised to salute the flag, even though her religion said that, uh, you know, we don't put governments, even our own, in a place of that sort of power and the like, where we, we have to salute. And most of us would salute and do routinely. But the hard question in that case, well, especially during a war, especially during a time when you want children to understand and support their government and their people at very difficult times, you know, the, the question was, well, can you really punish a kid by making it impossible for her to go to public school on the one hand or give up her religious beliefs uh, on the other? where the religious police, uh, for these purposes, are nothing more or less than she couldn't salute the American flag. I think kids can understand a case like that. I think they'd be sympathetic to the student and, and her situation and of not making her choose and her parents choose between adhering uh, to her religious faith uh, on the one hand or being forced to salute the flag on the other, even though, you know, what, 95% of us would and do uh, willingly uh, support the flag and are ready to salute it without any problem. I think if you use examples like that, you can teach kids why it's important, particularly when people are dissenters, when they're not like everyone else, when they don't have the same views as everyone else, that we should let them uh, have their views and not force them to limit their speech or to speak in ways that they'd rather not speak. Pivoting just a little bit to something that has broad public disapproval was the result of Citizens United. And you were part of that case. You were successful um, in arguing on behalf of Mitch McConnell. And you say that there are some fundamental misunderstandings um, by both the right and left about what the principles behind Citizens United are. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, I don't like the results, but I did find your logic persuasive. Could you talk a little bit about why you think Citizens United means something a little bit different than what the public view of it is? Right. Well, first, I, I think it's important for the public to understand what the case was about. I mean, here's a conservative group that disapproved uh, of uh, then-Senator Hillary Clinton when uh, she, she looked likely to be the Democratic candidate for president in 2008. And they prepare a, a sort of a documentary, uh, which they wanted to put on pay-per-view, 
And the documentary is a very tough, very harsh attack on then-Senator Clinton, with lots of people saying she was unfit to be president. And that organization was partially funded by a corporation, not so much as it happens, but some. And it was itself in a corporate form. To me, that's the sort of speech that we all ought to agree ought to be legally protected. But under the law as it then existed, if you put that on television or cable or satellite within 60 days of an election or 30 days of a primary, it would be a crime because some corporate money went into it. I think that's just wrongheaded and, uh, in my view, uh, inconsistent with the whole thrust of the First Amendment. Uh, beyond that, I'd say, and um, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of First Amendment work through the years, and many of my clients have been corporations that the public wouldn't think of as corporations. Uh, the Brooklyn Museum I represented. Well, yeah, all the museums are corporations. I've represented universities. All the universities are corporations. Uh, I've represented some libraries. The libraries, the public libraries, are all in corporate form. Uh, charities, just about all our charities, are in corporate form. Our hospitals. So, I mean, just to start, and of course, every newspaper, every broadcaster, a private and public, are all in corporate form. So to start out by saying, well, it, it's corporation and you shouldn't say that corporations have First Amendment rights, I mean, my reaction is that, you know, people, as a general proposition, people who engage in speech are entitled to First Amendment rights and entities that engage in speech are entitled to First Amendment rights. So that's my sort of starting point uh, on this. The only other thing I'd say is that, you know, we now know pretty well uh, what entities are spending money on the sort of political speech that what was called the McCain-Feingold law was uh, aimed at. And it's only a very small percentage of them are corporations. I mean, in the 2016 election, over $2 billion was spent altogether by everyone on uh, who to vote for in that election. But individuals by far spent the most money, over a billion. Corporations were nowhere near a billion dollars, and, and we're, we're closer to sort of 2 or 3% in total. So the predictions about the, the harm of Citizens United in allowing corporations to run the country uh, were, were really, as it turned out, you know, vastly overstated in terms of their sort of doom and gloom predictions. I mean, we have problems about our elections of a variety of sorts, and you can certainly make a strong case that we have problems in terms of uh, distribution of resources. I mean, how many people have too much power because they have too much money? And that's one sort of issue. We deal with that, though, not by limiting speech, but by whatever the public decides by way of taxes or 
antitrust laws or other legislation designed to try to even the playing field or at least prevent the super, super rich from running uh, everything. So where I came out on the, on this whole issue, and I, you know, I may have been wrong, but I, I certainly thought about it before I got involved, was that it was very important to try to uh, establish, I would say reestablish, that the First Amendment uh, applied in these situations, and that particularly when entities were speaking out in a political campaign, that while we want to know who they are, and we have a right to know who they are and how much they're spending and the like, that uh, we ought not to try to bar them from speaking because the form, the entity that is speaking happens to be a corporation. Okay, thank you. So one of the stark differences in American legal theory and European legal theory that you bring up in The Soul of the First Amendment is this idea of the right to be forgotten. Uh, And I was fascinated by this. Could you describe a little bit about what is going on in Europe and how that differs from Americans, but it it is affecting American companies? Uh, It's just a fascinating issue. So I just if you could speak a little bit about the right Uh, to be forgotten. Yeah, the uh, European courts have decided that uh, a a sort of privacy-based right should be uh, uh, enforced basically on the continent. And by privacy-based, I mean basically what they say is if you've been written about in a newspaper some years ago, it's not clear how many, but years ago, and you're not a public figure, and what was written about you is not relevant, and that was the word that's, that's used, is not relevant to things today, that the Googles of the world shouldn't be allowed to simply carry these old news stories about you. So it doesn't, they don't limit what newspapers can print or what television can broadcast or the like, but they do say that the entities which uh, repeated and which are a sort of main historical uh, entities to which we look when we want to have a look at somebody's history, Googles and, and, and other servers like that, shouldn't carry material about you if you object to it and if it is no longer relevant. So there's a case in Belgium, for example, just last year, where, you know, 10 years ago, somebody's driving a car, is responsible for a terrible accident, two people die in the car. He says to Google, I don't want you to carry this about me anymore. Uh, I just did it once. It's a long time ago. I'm not a politician. Uh, I'm not running for office. I don't think people ought to be able to read it. Well, in Europe, the answer was, he's right. Google has to take it down and not carry it. In the U.S., we would say, hey, we don't destroy history. We don't bar truth-telling. This is what happened. It's 10 years ago. It's 20 years ago. It is what it is. We choose not to go down the road of deciding or having some entity, a court, 
uh, in the end, deciding, well, is that still relevant or not? And so that difference in approach, uh, our saying basically, look, if you tell the truth about somebody, you're okay. I mean, there may be some exceptions, but the rule is, if you tell the truth about what someone did, you shouldn't get in trouble. Uh, and if Google, as it were, reports by, by carrying the old newspapers uh, so you can read it, you know, if that's the way they want to prepare their algorithms and, and they make those decisions as to what to carry, we would say, well, of course, they have a First Amendment right. The material was published. It's truthful. It was truthful. It is truthful about the past. We don't let the government get involved. And by governments, we mean courts, too, uh, in deciding, well, it's really not, it's not really relevant to anything today. That's a major difference between the U.S. approach uh, and that of Western uh, democracies. I'll say, as to this, we in Canada are on the same side. As to some other matters, the Canadian approach is more like the European ones. But in terms of right to be forgotten, uh, our uh, our hemisphere, at least the northern part of it, uh, is uh, uh, very strong on the proposition that we're not going to uh, bar Google and its competitors from carrying uh, accurate information from the past. And this question that we in America ask, well, is it true about this person, leads me into my last question for you, which is about libel laws. When President Donald Trump was on the campaign trail, he announced that he wished and promised to seek changes to the libel laws to bring them more in line with Europe. First of all, what possible consequences could that have? And second of all, do you think that in this current atmosphere, it's likely that he could achieve those changes? Well, first of all, what I don't think then-candidate Trump was aware of, there is no federal libel law. We don't have a United States libel law. We have 50 libel laws from 50 states. And uh, there's nothing Congress has ever done by way of drafting a libel law or changing libel law. There's nothing a president has done about changing libel law or the like. It's just not, there's no fit there. More broadly, though, state libel law has been limited by cases in the court. And, and basically what the courts have said is that in order to protect the First Amendment, and in particular to protect the right to criticize powerful people uh, in government and, and elsewhere, that they can't win a libel suit even if something's published about them, which turns out not to be true, unless they did it on purpose, basically, unless they knew it wasn't true or published it with a, with a very high degree of awareness that it was probably untrue. That's a big difference, uh, as, as your question suggested. That's a big difference from what is the law, basically, throughout uh, Europe. And, and it's, uh, I don't think that that the Supreme Court is at all likely to change uh, its view uh, expressed uh, for the first time in 1964 that the First Amendment required that sort of protection because libel law can too easily be used by the rich and powerful to suppress speech 
uh, of which they disapprove or which which gives them uh, a lack of comfort or angers them even, that we have to be careful in allowing libel cases to prevent uh, a speech from being uttered. And so the direction we've gone is to say, you not only have to show something isn't true, but that that the speaker, the person that criticizes, say, President Trump, knew it wasn't true or uh, suspected it wasn't true. I mean, I thought for some time the most interesting new libel case would be if President Obama were to have sued President Trump for uh, President Trump's uh, false statements that Obama uh, had engaged in wiretapping of him, which, which would have been illegal if he had done it. Uh, and, you know, that's a case where the plaintiff, in my hypothetical, <laughs> President Obama were to bring that suit, he would have to prove that President Trump not only spoke falsely, which he did, but that he knew it wasn't true, or that he had a high level of knowledge that it was probably untrue. Uh, that's what the libel law is, and uh, I think that's that's the way it should remain. Well, Floyd, thank you so much for joining us and for discussing your book, The Soul of the First Amendment. For our listeners, if you are hearing this before Saturday, August 12th, and would like to hear more from Floyd, you can go to the ABA annual meeting. There is a showcase event, the showcase CLE event, called Trump versus the Press and the First Amendment which he will be a panelist on uh, in New York City. All right. Thank you again, Floyd. If anyone is interested in reading more of your writing or getting in contact with you, is there a website they should go to or or more books that they should read? Uh, I don't have a website of that sort. They can certainly get this book through Amazon or any of the ordinary sources. I mean, the uh, an earlier book I wrote, which was more about practicing law and practicing law in the First Amendment uh, area is also uh, available. But, you know, they can find me online if they look for it. All right. Well, thank you again to Floyd Abrams for joining us to talk about his book, The Soul of the First Amendment, on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.